You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good morning, everybody. Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Glad to have you with us this morning. Are you familiar with the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? You know that one? I'm encountering that phrase from a completely new angle this morning because normally I'm introducing the new tricks. And today I am the old dog because I am trying to record my podcast using a slightly different setup And uh, not that you are even remotely interested in how it works. Let me just tell you, I'm at the age where different feels bad. And I know it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. But I'm stumbling and and moving around in awkward ways this morning trying to uh, record this podcast. Hey, it is a big week. We are going to gather in real time, in real space on Sunday at 10 a.m., at Gezer Park. This is July 26th. You may be listening to this too late, but if it's not July 26th yet, you can still do this. It is located about 133rd and Mission in beautiful Leewood, Kansas, and we're going to gather 10 a.m. and sing. Now, we are under a mask mandate in Kansas, and that means probably need to wear a mask. Now, I understand you can distance and outside there's a bit of a gray area, but probably better safe than sorry. Bring your own chair because we're in a park. There's no chairs. Well, let's say and Rachel Faagutu are going to be leading worship, and it is going to be phenomenal. And I really, really think you ought to be there. Sunday, 10 a.m., just come and enjoy. We're going to dedicate to the Lord a real live baby. No kidding. Yeah, going to have a baby dedication. It is going to be a fun morning, maybe an hour, hour and 15 minutes. We're going to be up and out of there before it gets too hot. Join us Sunday, Gezer Park, 10 a.m. Now, before I dive into the teaching this morning, I have to confess I find myself lately at odds with a hero, one of my own, and it is a strange place to be. Now, who I'm talking about was alive in the early and mid-1700s, Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, who was a German count who, through his generosity to a religious group called the Moravians, launched a 24-hour prayer meeting that lasted over 100 years, and really launched the Protestant missions movement as we know it. Massive contribution to day and night prayer. Massive contribution to the missions movement. And in advising missionaries that were about ready to leave for the foreign field, Count Zinzendorf said this, The missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor or hope of fame. Like the cab horse in London, each of you must wear blinkers that blind you to every danger and every snare and conceit. Okay, stop for a second. I am with the Count so far, okay? The Count and I are one on that. I, I, I agree with him. But the latter part of the quote, which is the part that is normally pulled out of context and quoted, is the part where he and I part ways. And it's always bothered me, and I'm beginning to get language for it. He closes it up by saying, You must be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. Yeah, I don't think so. Let me let me explain. Recently, I saw the musical Hamilton for the first time, along with probably most of you on Disney+. Plus. Okay, Now, I don't like things that are long. I don't like musicals. I really don't like musicals. 
but I love history and I love good writing and Hamilton blew me away. I, everything about it. I just loved, loved, loved it. And if you're familiar with it, everybody has their favorite song. And as of this moment, mine is the closing number. It's called Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. The song is set after Hamilton has died. Now, if you missed the cues early on in the play, Hamilton was a man driven by the idea that he didn't have enough time. And poetically, he dies in his 40s having lived more in those 40-some years than many people do in a hundred. He was a prolific writer. He penned most of the Federalist Papers and countless treaties and speeches for people like George Washington. Hamilton did a lot of living, but he did it in a really short amount of time. And in the closing song, most of the lyrics are sung by the character Eliza, Hamilton's wife. Eliza outlives her husband by 50 years, and she dedicates her life to telling his story. Now, just on a very vulnerable moment, sometimes I feel like Alexander Hamilton, and you probably do too. Not as accomplished, but just as pressed. There's a lot in my heart to do, and I've already enjoyed a few more years than Hamilton did. I was out for a walk the other night. I was listening to the soundtrack when Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story starts to play. I told a friend later, I was already in that emotional state where I'm kind of wondering if I'd accomplished enough in my life for my story to even be worth being told. And I heard her go into the last part of the song. It goes like this. Can I show you what I'm proudest of? I established the first private orphanage in New York City. I helped raise hundreds of children. I get to see them growing up. In their eyes, I see you, Alexander. I see you every time. And when my time is up, will I have done enough? Will they tell your story? I told a friend later, I was glad it was raining because it served to mask the fact that I was just sobbing with this idea that the things that we do that matter the most will live and be retold by other people. Now, Kelsey and I have invested our lives into kids. I want them to tell my story, not because it's my story alone, but because it's our story and it's God's story. You have invested your life into things and to people. It is not wrong for you to want them to tell your story if it's been God's story. Don't deny the power of your own journey. Don't be content to preach the gospel and die. Preach the gospel and live a remarkable life so that your story gets told over and over and over because the author of your story didn't write it just for you to live it. He wrote your story so it could be told, not so that you would be the hero, but that he would be glorified and you could preach the gospel from the grave. So no, don't forget me. I want to preach through my kids and through what I have done in this life long after I'm dead. This week's teaching is from this past Sunday. It's entitled Little, Rough, and Ugly, Part 3, A Study of the Early Church. Acts 6, 
Now, as a father, there are times when you can see things happening an absolute mile away. It's like watching, um, it's like watching a Bugs Bunny video when he's walking towards the rake. You've all seen this. If you see Bugs Bunny and a rake in the same frame, you know what's going to happen. He's going to step on the rake. It's going to smack him in the face. It happens over and over again. Parenting is a series of Bugs Bunny rake moments. You see things coming for your kids. You know what's about to happen and you want to stop it. You can't always stop it. This morning, as we are in Acts 6 to 8, it feels like God may have pulled the throne a little closer to the balcony and leaned forward thinking, this is a Bugs Bunny rake moment. I know what's going to happen here. I've seen it coming a mile away. And if we were to title this passage, we would probably title it, Here Comes Trouble. Now, there's a part of me that wants to tell you how much smoother and easier and comfortable life is when you follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Unfortunately, that has not been reflected in my own personal experience, and I don't see it reflected in Scripture. That's not the way life works. Yes, life is better with Jesus. Yes, life is eternal with Jesus. But if you're looking for smooth and easy, you would not walk with Jesus. You would go with the flow of the rest of the world. Something that Kelsey and I feel really strongly about is preparing believers who will not go with the flow because I really believe as we go with the flow, there will come a day when we're not really recognized as believers at all. A casual approach to the faith and the future will leave us unprepared for the things that are going to come. So Kelsey and I are very intent on having the hard conversations with you about life in advance so that when struggle comes, we won't be unprepared, or even worse, we won't get discouraged and lose heart. Even if you have no prophetic sense of what is happening, simple prudence would lead a thoughtful person to prepare for what might come. Proverbs 22.3 says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and they suffer for it. Being unprepared for what might happen can be devastating. I found this quote earlier this week. 91 days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, journalist Clark Beach wrote in a major newspaper, a Japanese attack on Hawaii is regarded as the most unlikely thing in the world with one millionth of a chance of being successful. Besides having more powerful defenses than any other post under the American flag, it is protected by distance. 91 days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Jesus himself tried to warn us to be prepared for what might follow if we were to follow him. He told us in John 16, I have said these things. In other words, I've told you this before. How many times have you told your children? I've told you this before, but I'm going to tell you again, that in me, you may have peace and in the world, you will have tribulation or trouble is a better, better translation there. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's like, you know what? In me, you're going to have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. And guess what? You're in both places right now. You're going to have peace as you dwell with me, but you're going to have difficulty and trouble as you dwell within the world. And this week, we see a picture of what Jesus is talking about. We see the first signs of trouble as we look at this series called Little Rough and Ugly, a study of the early church. Up until now, 
life for the early church has been exciting. I mean, new things are exciting for the most part. They're full of possibilities. And the church saw amazing things happen. They had seen Jesus ascend to be with the Father. They saw all of their people all in one accord. They saw the Holy Spirit poured out on them. They saw thousands of people that had been saved in just a couple of short chapters. There was that brief moment when the two apostles were in custody of the authorities, and there were those two people that died during the offering. But other than that, it had been really smooth sailing. And in Acts 6, it opens, and as I say, here comes trouble. From Acts 6 to the beginning of 8, they face difficulty in two different forms. Difficulty comes at them this way. There is conflict within, for up until now, that has been unrecorded. If there was conflict within the church, it, it doesn't mention it at all, and suddenly there's conflict within. There is also conflict without at a level that they have never, ever faced before. It's not a one-time thing. It'll continue throughout the book. It'll continue throughout history. It will increase at the end of the age, but we see our first glimpse of conflict from without. And it might have been easy to say at this point, if you were a part of the early church, I didn't sign up for this. I thought we were looking for a king to return, and now we're fighting with each other, and we're being attacked. Church life is fraught with things that we never signed up for to begin with, because it's fraught with humanity. And also, it is the vehicle that God designed to spread the message of his son's death and resurrection and the potential eternal life. And so not only do we have wrestling from within, we have pressure from without because Satan presses against that with all of the hatred that he has for God. Now, I am super grateful in this season of our life for the message of Acts 6, 7, and 8, because Acts doesn't whitewash the story or write out the gory parts. If the book of Acts was presented to us as a stainless steel, perfectly sterile, ideal church functioning, I think I would have quit by now. Instead, it shows us real human beings wrestling with how to serve God when there's internal problems and there's external pressures, and God moves in spite of all of that powerfully. It's what I can say yes to because it matches my experience and my history. I look at my history and I go, yeah, I see some of this happening. First of all, let's talk about external strife. Acts 6, verses 1 and 2. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now I'm not going to take this entire passage this slowly, but I'm going to unpack this just a little bit here so we understand what is going on. There's probably never been a time in history where it has been easy to be a widow, but the first century church made it, or the first century setting made it exceptionally difficult. Poverty was rampant, so when a woman would lose her home or lose her husband, who was the breadwinner for the family, it wasn't automatically assumed that she could move in with her children because her children probably lived in poverty in a one-bedroom or a one-room home themselves. And while the life length was not drastically different from what we know now, they would often live into their 60s, 70s, or 80s, the infant mortality rate was really high. So it wasn't unusual for a woman to grow old with no adult children to care for her. Times were tough, conditions were hard, water had to be carried. Just imagine all of the water that you have used in your home this morning. What would you have done if you'd had to go carry it? 
There was no refrigeration. There was no plumbing. Everything had to procure, be procured day by day. And traditionally, the synagogues would take care of the Jewish widows at some level. But it appears as if, if those widows were Christians, that fell to the early church. And when it refers to the daily distribution of food, uh, we, we have a, in our mind that someone somewhere was making sandwiches and they were handing those out as part of a feeding program. It probably wasn't that. It wasn't that organized. It was more family-oriented. Scholars suggest that as the church would gather on a daily basis, that other families would bring leftovers and those meals would be shared with the widows who were there. It wasn't so much a family as it was, a, or it wasn't much a system as it was kind of a family operation. And in some ways, the church body that God had assembled in that age was ripe for misunderstanding. They were very diverse, but diversity, the thing that made it beautiful, also made it volatile. The church was very diverse. We'll talk about this for a little bit. But there were two main groups in the body. They were the Hebraic Jews, those who had grown up and lived in Jerusalem their entire lives. And then there were Hellenists or Greek-influenced Jews. The Hebraic Jews had deep roots in Jerusalem, and the Hellenists were those that had been traveling the world in the Greek culture and had returned to Jerusalem and joined the church. The Hebrews and the Greeks within the church were as different as night and day. Now, the Hebrew Jews or the Hebraics they probably spoke a little Greek to get by, but the Hebrew language was used in their home and it was used in their worship. The language is a part of their expression of faith. And heaven helped the Greeks that didn't use the right Hebrew words when they came together to worship. I was once confronted by a dear saint because I used the word foyer to describe what she was convinced was a narthex. And that was a big deal to her because I used the wrong word. You can imagine the Hebraic Jews being offended at the Greeks that wouldn't use the right words. The Hellenists or the Greeks spoke the Greek language. They had been forced to acclimate to it when they travel away from the land. And they probably picked up a few Greek habits along the way in the way of dress and business and culture. And the Hebrews throughout Judea distrusted the Greeks or the Hellenists, and they considered them foreigners, even though they were completely Jewish. They might say, you are one of us, but you're not really like us. The Hebrews thought the Greeks or the Hellenists were worldly compromisers. They had left the land, they had seen the world, and they came back with all of these big city ideas. They brought dangerous customs from those cities, and they just weren't quite like them. The Hellenists, or the Greeks, on the other hand, had navigated the world, and they looked at the Hebrews, and they considered them to be a little bit uptight and overly religious people who maybe had never even seen what was just over the next hill. They all had the same faith and the same Savior, but they really didn't understand one another. And even six chapters into the story of the early church, diversity accentuated difference that led to division. Now, remember... From the beginning of the church, diversity was engineered by God. He was the one who cho chose to pour out his Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on a time when it was packed from people from the known world. This wasn't a fluke. This was for the health of the church. In any healthy church, there will be people who are different than you are. Maybe the difference won't be as drastic as, as Greek and Hebrew, 
but there will be people who have the same faith and the same values, but their expression or their perspective will be very different than yours. This has value. In chapters to come, we see that this difference combined with another element that we'll talk about in just a little bit actually helped to spread the gospel across the known world because they were different. But in close proximity, diversity can lead to real frustration. The frustration that the Hellenists or the Greeks had with the Hebrews was that the Hellenists or the Greek widows were not getting their fair share of the food. And to the Hebrews who were caring for the Hebrew widows and leaving the Greeks to suffer and to read the passage that was written by a Hebrew, it appears that that accusation was accurate. The Hebrew who wrote the passage said their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, again, the system wasn't very formal, so it might have been unintentional that they were doing this, but it was real. Have you ever hurt someone's feelings or done something offensive only to say, well, that wasn't my intention? I didn't mean not to feed them. I, it's just how it happened. To us, our intentions are everything. Our intentions are pure. Our intentions should be obvious to everybody. Our intentions are how we want to be judged. But to others, our actions are what really matter. Now, you could understand the Hebrews resisting this idea that the Greeks were not being cared for. You could understand them saying, hey, we, we didn't intentionally exclude anybody. If you wanted resources, you should have gotten a line. We want to help you. We're on your side. We think all widows matter. All widows mattered, but some of those widows were getting pushed away from the table. And to have some inclusivity sermon from the Hebrew believer whose mom was 10 pounds over the doctor's recommended limit when the Greek's mother was getting thinner by the day did not make it feel like every widow mattered. Hebrews might have felt strongly about unity, but to the Greek hungry widow, that felt shallow. And to the Greek leader in the church, this was a personal affront. How can you say we are all in one accord when some of us are hungry? Now, intentions really do matter mostly to us. To an oppressed people, others are measured by what the majority does or does not do. And what follows sounds like an administrative task. When you read it quickly, it just sounds like it's an admin thing. But it was some of the most inclusive, reconciliatory leadership imaginable. Rather than being offended because their intentions were questioned, the 12 disciples took decisive action to correct, correct the reality, regardless of their intentions. And it didn't matter if they intended or not to hurt the Greeks. They clearly had, and they wanted to make it right. If we value people that are different than us, be it race, economics, education, whatever the difference, the first thing we need to let go of is our defensiveness and arguing, but we didn't mean to. In recent weeks, our nation has struggled with her own history in regards to race, as well as legitimate present-day concerns. And I have uh, intentionally refrained from commenting, in part because I didn't want to rush into a conversation that everyone else was talking about just because I wanted my voice to be in the mix. I wanted to take some time internally and just make sure I wasn't speaking out of defensiveness, and I wanted to examine my own actions and not just my intentions. We have, have to hear how others feel rather than interrupting them to tell them what we meant. And in the next few verses, the apostles recognized there was a problem, whether it was intentional or not. You know, problems are often caused unintentionally. We often don't mean to cause a problem, it just 
becomes a legitimate problem. We accidentally cause problems, but we never accidentally solve problems. Those things never resolve themselves just by chance. And the disciples were incredibly intentional with what they did, probably more so than you've realized. Looking at verses 3 and 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, meaning they gathered them all together. So when we think of the apostles, gather all the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, let me, a sidebar here. It's as crazy as it sounds. There are times when people in ministry will try and pull rank. It's, it's the craziest thing. It, when they try and point out what their role is to make them important. When we were running stadium events, uh, we were moving a lot of people around who were in, in different roles. And uh, we had a man try and get to the backstage area where he was not authorized to be. And one of my staff, a young woman, early 20s, kindly told him, sir, you can't go back there. And he reared back and he looked at her and he said, young lady, do you not recognize that I am a prophet of God? And as sweetly as she could be, she looked at him and said, sir, if you really were a prophet, you would have known you can't go back there. Now that didn't go over very well with him, but there are times when people in ministry try and throw away because they're human. And at first glance, it looks like Luke is pulling rank here. When Luke wrote, it is not right. It is not right that we should wait tables. Sounds like he's trying to get out of something he doesn't want to do. Why should I wait tables? I'm an apostle. That is not at all what he was saying. They are not considering themselves too good to do this, only that if they serve tables, they would not have the availability to do what they were called to do. And it clearly wasn't working well because there were some widows who weren't being fed. There's an artificial, unhealthy, dark line that has separated those in vocational ministry, particularly preaching, from those who serve in other areas. And it has served to demotivate many who think that the, the assignments that God has given them are too simple or too unimportant. Whatever is done in the service of the king is ministry. If you are preaching, that is ministry. If you are waiting tables, that is ministry. If you are representing the Lord in an administrative role, administrative role, that's ministry. My point is that the apostles weren't making this a second-class activity. They were making it a priority by assigning people to do it. Never despair because your role is different than somebody else does. The fact that you even have an assignment means that God isn't wasting resources. It may be your season of waiting tables, but it's legitimate ministry. And as we read about these guys, we realize they're some of the most powerful people in the New Testament. Widows were going to be cared for because of this, and the gospel was going to be preached because of this. This was ministry. There's a passage that I read often to myself, because we all need to be reminded. 1 Peter 4, uh, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as to the one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God provides, in order that in everything God may be glorified. Quit looking for what you think are ministry opportunities and start looking at what God has asked you to do as ministry. God is sovereign and he has placed you in your role with the same care and the same intention that he has placed the pastor of the largest church in town at his post. He put you in your role because the pastor of that church 
couldn't do what you were called to do. Only you were qualified to do that. And you were called and qualified to walk in your role as a believer in the circles that he has put you. And as we'll see in a minute, the role of waiting tables required the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, back to the storyline. And uh, this apparently satisfied the Greeks. Because in Acts 6, 5 and 6, it says this. And let's talk about intentionality here. And when they had pleased the whole gathering, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, or even the religious people, came obedient to the faith. Now, two last things about this internal conflict. Note, it remarks about Stephen. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We will see in subsequent verses that Stephen was a remarkable godly man who was a powerful preacher in his own right. This man that they called to wait tables preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts and does miracles. Being drafted into serving tables doesn't mean you, get, you miss the opportunities to operate in the supernatural. Whatever your role is, those gifts of the Spirit continue. Secondly, if we look at the names of those selected, Stephen, Philip, Nekon, or Timon, these names, we don't know for certain, but it's interesting that these are all primarily Greek names. Nicholas wasn't even Jewish at all. He was a converted Gentile. Apparently, when the Hebrew apostles wanted to rectify this problem that strung from diversity, the majority of those in power put the minority in places of authority to fix the problem. Remember, the Hebraic Jews were struggling to accept the ways of the Greeks. They were an irritation to them in some way, but they were also their brothers. And their love for their brothers and sisters proved to be greater for their drive, than their drive to control things. And when they turned over the authority to them, they were free to do what God called them to do. And it diffused the tension within the church. The inward pressure of the church of Acts that it struggled with was addressed by honoring those who waited tables, making sure that the job was given with dignity, and recognizing how God valued the Greeks, that it could have been easily forced to just deal with the oppression. Instead, they were empowered to help contribute to the solution. Now, again, though, this whole section is called Here Comes Trouble, and there was more on the way. The second, though, wasn't internally, it was outward. Look at Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, this is one of these Hellenistic Greek believers who was drafted to wait on tables. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, remember, same Stephen who only a few verses before was commissioned to wait tables. This is how serious God took that assignment. He's not only doing the administrative piece, he's doing signs and wonders along the way. When we draw a thick, dark line between our, what is our work environment and the moving of the Spirit, that is not of God. It's of the enemy who would do anything he could to get you thinking of your assignment as detached from the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's the same guy who's waiting tables and is doing great miracles. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to the office tomorrow and you stand on your desk and you preach a sermon. But it does mean that while you operate wherever he has called you, 
You have the full range of the gifts of the Spirit that reside wherever you walk in whatever assignment. Scripture tells us that Stephen angered the mob of rabbis of a certain synagogue, and they rose up against him because it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit by which he was speaking. And in order to instigate men and bolster their case, they told lies about him, insisting that he was blaspheming Moses and God. And at one point, they actually said, he never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. Now, those were harsh charges, and they weren't even true. If there's anything more wearisome than straight-out accusation, it's false accusation, okay? Now, I have been accused of things that I did, and I've been accused of things that I didn't do. I will take fact-based accusation any day because I can do something about that. But false accusation has a way of wearing on the human heart with a sense of hopelessness because it's one thing to be blamed for something you've done that you can wrestle with and you can maybe make adjustments. To be blamed for something that isn't even accurate, you've got no control over your future. Jesus was so aware of the weight that false accusation would have on your heart that he included it in what we would call a foundational document for Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5.11, he said, Blessed are you when others revile against you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He said, even when you are attacked falsely, there is a blessing that goes with that. It is the worst thing to be accused of something you did not do because you don't even know how to respond because if you respond to that, then what is the next thing they're going to accuse you of? It is far from our current experience, but today around the world, Christians are being persecuted for faith in Jesus. It is common. In Colombia, 18 months ago, a 24-year-old pastor was riddled with bullets as he left his church because he was a believer. In the same reason, not, or region, not long after that, another pastor was shot in front of his family. Local believers in that area are now praying about leaving the area where they have farmed for generations because they don't know if they're safe just because they profess Christ. In Nigeria, it's been two and a half years since a young group of Christian girls were captured by Boko Haram Five girls died in the attack, and the rest now have all been released except for one girl who remains in captivity simply because she refuses to deny Christ. Around the world, this is a very common thing. It's hard for us as Americans to imagine being persecuted for what we believe. It's easier to think, well, it must be more complicated than that. They must have done something. But Jesus is clear. You will be accused falsely. You will be called out for things that you didn't even do. How do we respond when we are accused falsely? Rather than rage against people or go into a panic, Stephen's response here is remarkable. Acts 6.15 says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He was a living example of what Paul would later write to Timothy when he wrote in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Peter is living that out. He's not afraid. He's got power and he's got love and he's got self-control. 
self-control. And from the outside, self-control can look passive. But let me assure you, if you've ever had to muster it, it is intensely active. In 2 Peter, it's aligned with things like steadfastness and godliness as something that we should make every effort to supplement to our faith. 1 Corinthians 9 tells us that one who runs the race to win is an athlete that exercises self-control in all things. You don't win races passively, and you don't exercise self-control passively. It is something that you have to take charge of and be active of. Here's a word of preparation. You cannot, if you can't control yourself in times of ease, you will never control yourself in times of pressure. And times of pressure are coming. Many believers around the world would say that times of pressure are already here. If you're finding your Christian life just a little too insulated to understand how this could happen, let me encourage you, look into an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. They're based right down in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and they record issues of persecution around the world. If you go to persecution.com, you can sign up for their magazine. They'll send you a monthly reminder in the mail of what this is like. It is full of stories in real time of people who share their faith but are facing great persecution and the peace of God that they are able to exude during these times. If that passage, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control, if that doesn't work for us during seasons of mild pushback that we might get for our faith today, do you think that we're going to be able to implement it when we're facing real danger? The passion and the anger against Stephen increases. Maybe because he didn't engage with them that they wanted. The enemy wants you to come unglued, and if you really want to rattle the forces of darkness, exhibit a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And Acts 7 goes on to say, in verse 54 to 56, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. This is after he has preached a sermon to them. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and said to the glory of God and to Jesus standing there at the right hand of God, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now keep in mind, at this point, they've been throwing words at him. They're getting ready to throw stones, and he knows that. But Jesus gives Stephen a picture of where he is going. If you know where you're going, if you really understand the arc of history and the future of a believer, you can endure anything. If you don't understand where you're going, you're going to fold under the slightest bit of pressure. Do you know what it means for a, a document to be redacted? You ever, you, ever, you ever heard that word? Something's redacted. Oftentimes, uh, the government will issue uh, uh, top secret paperwork or they'll, they'll send it out, publicize it after they say it's been redacted to um, erase names, and they'll hold up a page, and it looks like they've highlighted it with a Sharpie. You know, there's just ch entire chunks missing. You're like, I, can't, I don't even understand the full meaning of this document because there's so many pieces missing. We have unrighteously redacted the idea of persecution from normal faith. We have lined it out to think that it just never happens. Here are a few passages that we have not seen. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We just, we've redacted that. And at some level, 
of persecution will be our norm because our values will be at such odds with the spirit of the age as it increases in power. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happened. When you face persecution, when somebody in your office presses back specifically against your faith, you can't act like you didn't know that was going to happen. He said, don't act like it's strange. Jesus himself told us, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, and will never be. He said, this will increase over time. And it's increasing even now. The Lord included this story for us, not just as a piece of history, but as a piece of preparation. This isn't just history. This is something that we use to shape our lives. Acts continues in verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, they called out, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And with that, Stephen, some versions say, gave up his ghost or he died. You can almost hear the final stones that were in people's hands drop to the ground because there was no point anymore. The work was done. He was dead. They had no idea what they had done. They thought that they had silenced the followers of Jesus, but the mob attack on Stephen stirred up hatred against the church in the city, and a great persecution broke out across Jerusalem. And what the religious people didn't expect was that the blood of martyrs would serve to press the church into spreading out across the known world, and the diversity of their church would make that even more effective. Had Stephen not suffered, the early church might have remained a local phenomenon fighting with itself for years. His death was not in vain. His life was invested. It is the beauty of life in step with the Spirit of God that we never waste a step. And even if called to martyrdom, the Lord sees it as beautiful and the message of, the, of Jesus is furthered because of us. Now, this is not a popular message. It would be easier to tell you that victory is coming and it would be true to tell you that victory is coming, but likewise, trouble is coming. And it comes from within the church. Now, not all that trouble leads to division. If we walk with one another with love, the trouble that rises up between us gets rectified, and it actually leads to the spread of the gospel. But trouble also comes from without. But if we stand in the peace of Jesus, knowing that even our very lives are worth surrendering for him, the message of Jesus spreads, and we get to see him face to face. My appeal would be for you to wake up from the slumber and lean hard into the call of Jesus to the cross and to a community of people to do life with. Now, we would love for that to be this community as we continue to grow. We understand these are very unusual times, but we believe that the Lord is knitting something together here. If, this, if not this community, then another community somewhere that during times of difficulty, you would not walk alone. God of the break and shatter. Hudson.
Thanks for listening today. If you would like more information, go to zoefoundationkc.com. That's zoefoundationkc.com regarding opportunities to connect as well as archives of teaching. Have a great day.